11 miles northeast of Vancouver, Washington, sets a small city amongst the hills along the coast of the Pacific Ocean. Battleground sets the scene of one of the most bone-chilling cases to come from the heavy forested area. A mother, or some would say a psychopath, tortured her family as a means of entertainment. She made a spectacle out of showering her family with gifts, but out of sight, she barely gave them enough to live. Behind the doors of a farm home, no one would have guessed that the beautiful red-headed matriarch was meaner than the legacy of her grandmother. Her constant need to be number one in everyone's life drove some away, but the ones who depended on her for their very existence watched as each day she grew more vengeful, sadistic, and evil. One could say you could see what the future had in store for Shelly Notek. Others prayed that she would change and become the loving person she tried to show everyone she was. Lies upon lies developed a web so deep, dark, and sinister that once she could see what was coming, she was powerless to stop it. No matter where one stands, you cannot deny that her manipulation was the very thing to make one feel safe in her presence. Once she had you all to herself and away from the ones that could see what she was doing, then she attacked and tore you down for her own enjoyment. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we're going to tackle a case that flew under the radar in the early 2000s because two people took advantage of the justice system with a plea that claimed that the evidence the state had was enough to prove them guilty, but that they were not actually guilty of the crime. As we make our way through this multi-part look at Shelley and Dave Notek, you will see that not only would the evidence prove them guilty, but that they were guilty in every sense of the word. Three women, the children of Shelly and Dave, told the story of what their childhood looked like so that there would never be another victim once their mother walked back into the free world. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of child abuse, torture, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening. Let me introduce you to... Michelle Shelley Lynn Watson Bravardo Long Notek. She was born April 15th, 1954 to Les and Sharon Watson. She has two siblings, Chuck and Paul. They are both younger than she is. And her father was quite known around Battleground, Washington. 
Les was known to many and described by most as charming, smooth talking, and the master of bullshit. He could talk his way out of or into anything that he wanted. Les's parents owned a few nursing homes in the area, and Les himself owned a bowling alley. And it was at the Tiger Bowl that Les met Laura Stallings, a much younger woman, but he didn't let that detail stand in the way of getting to know her. He charmed Laura, using his family's success to seal the deal with her. He even left out the fact that he was 10 years her senior, stating to her that he was only four. So he had already started the relationship out on a lie. But then that didn't matter. Laura never found out. And she was in love with Les, this big burly of a man. And even though her parents weren't thrilled of the relationship, she knew that they supported her. And in 1960, Les sweet-talked the blonde beauty into marrying him. His parents, however, were noticeably missing from the small civil ceremony. And it's for good reason. It wouldn't be long before Laura found out Les's lies by omission. Not only did she find out he was significantly older than her, she also found out he had been married before and he had three children. And how she found this out was Miss Sharon Watson called up not too long after they were married. And when Laura answered the phone, the first thing out of her mouth was, when are you coming to get these kids? She'd had it. She was done. It was Les's turn. Tag, you're it. So by the fall of 1960, Laura found herself stepmother to Michelle or Shelly, as most people called her, and Chuck Watson. And it was clear that even though Chuck was old enough to talk, he didn't. Shelly would often speak for him, answering questions, you know, just trying to steer the attention back to herself. She was a very dominating soul. She did what she wanted, when she wanted, no matter the cost. And Shelly alone was a handful for Laura. And then she had Chuck, who had his own issues. So... Laura's a mother only by step-parent. She's trying to raise these two kids who are already very set in the ways that they have, and she is just overwhelmed. Thankfully, the youngest, Paul, stayed with Laura or stayed with Sharon when Les and Laura took on Shelley and Chuck. But in 1967, Les received a phone call from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. They needed him to come pick up his youngest son, Paul, because Sharon had been murdered, and he also needed to identify her body. And it became obvious fairly quickly that Les didn't want Paul, and it's because Paul just did whatever whenever. He had zero impulse control, along with a slew of other behavioral issues because, I mean, you know, what's the chances of not all three of them not having something? It's obvious that their life with their mother, they saw very little correction or direction in the way they should be living their lives. They just kind of did what they wanted. And once they drove her mother up the wall, then she called their father and was like, hey, come get these kids because I'm done. So poor Laura was left to kind of tackle all of these issues that they had developed so early in life with their mother. Now she needed to change that in these children. And so Laura and Les tackled the abundance of behavioral issues that not only Paul had, but Shelly had and Chuck had. 
by spending quality time together as a family. They thought that if the children saw how they interacted and were rounded enough that eventually those bad behaviors they had picked up early in life would be moved out because the new behaviors they were picking up from Les and Laura and this happy family they were trying to provide these kids with would move in. Well, no such luck. Shelly, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't stand for it. She would pitch fits. She would start fights, flat out refuse to participate. And if none of that didn't work, then she got crafty. And if Shelly didn't want to do something, she wasn't going to do it. And she learned very early on that if I'm not going to do it and you don't accept the fact that I'm not going to do it, well, then I'm going to lie to you and get what I want anyways. Like if she didn't want her to do her homework the night before, she would go to school the next morning and tell her teacher that her siblings had destroyed all of her hard work. When in reality, she didn't do it. But that's the way Shelly operated. And you can almost see, I'm not a psychologist. Let me just say that. I don't know if any of you are, but you can already see the equation adding up for a psychopath. You know, there's very little empathy there. She has none. She wants the spotlight on her and she will do whatever it takes to get it. She even did things like if she just got upset with her brothers, she would crush up glass and pour it into the soles of their shoes. So when they went to go put their shoes on the next morning, they stepped on all this glass and she found that funny. That's not funny. I mean, these poor children were tortured by their sister and Laura and Les were powerless to stop this. It was just a snowball and nothing they did seemed to deviate that path it was taking. But Laura, she did the best that she could. And she noticed that if Shelly didn't want to do something, then maybe if she did a few things for Shelly, it would kind of sweet talk her into doing it. So let's say like when she get up in the morning Laura would have Shelly's clothes picked out for her. That's one less thing that Shelly had to think about. She just had to put her clothes on. She'd go downstairs. Laura would have her breakfast waiting for her. That's one less thing that Shelly had to do in order to go to school. And Laura hoped by taking those little small choices and brief spurts of effort away from Shelly that maybe it would encourage her to keep going. That was her hope. However, Shelly had a totally different agenda. So it wasn't long after Laura had started kind of trying to help her stepdaughter in a means as of getting her ready for school that she got a phone call. Shelly had been walking to school and during her walk she would stop at a service station, the very same service station, every day and she would go in with one outfit on and come out with another and go to school or wherever it is that she wanted to go that day. So Laura got in the car, she drove down to the station and she went into the restroom and sure enough, there in a pile of on the, you know, in the corner of the restroom are all these clothes that she had picked out for Shelly to wear. Shelly didn't want to wear them flat out because Laura had put her touch on it or suggested it. Shelly wanted nothing from her and she was going to make it very known. She did not like her stepmother. She told her on a daily basis how much she hated her. It was not something new. Laura tried. She was trying to be the best mother she could, having never been a mother prior to getting custody of these children. 
And she was trying to correct behaviors that were already set in their ways. And it was just a recipe for disaster. And poor Laura, she trudged through it every day, trying to do better for them. It wasn't long after that Shelly's behavior seemed to get worse. She went from being disruptive and ungrateful to dark and vengeful. She resented her siblings, especially if they received attention she felt should have been given to her. And to get even, she would do like put the glass in their shoes or, you know, she would just be almost sadistic. And she found it funny once they figured out what she had done. It was humorous to her where we would cringe and withdraw. She's laughing and rolling around on the floor. Shelly began lying about other family members um, and lying to other family members. She would take money from them. She was even suspected of arson of the Watson's family home when she was young. Shelly was going to get her way and she didn't care what it took to do so. She didn't care. So enter in Grandma Anna. This is Shelly's paternal grandmother. This is Les's mother, Anna. And Anna was born in Fargo, North Dakota. She is a tall, large person, similar to her son. And she walked with a slight limp. She always dragged her left foot just a little. And you always knew it was her coming because of the sound of her step drag, step drag. People knew her. And she had a reputation. She had a legacy that just cringy. I mean... She, she had to be absolutely right about every single thing. Absolutely right. You no one ever questioned her because she was a bigger person. You didn't dare try to push back. Anna was married to George Watson. He could have possibly and understandably lived his life with battered spouse syndrome or tendencies because Anna was flat out mean to this man. She made him sleep outside in a small eight by eight shed for 20 years of their marriage. Who does that? Who puts up with that? But who does that? You know, he wasn't allowed in his own home. His wife made him sleep out back. He wasn't a very big person in comparison. So, I mean, and you know, at the time they were married, yeah, divorce was a word or it was taboo. You didn't do it. You just didn't. And if you heard of people getting divorced, well, you snickered and whispered behind their backs. That's just the time frame that they were all raised in and lived. And like him, oh gosh, him not being able to sleep inside the house is just awful. The community had something different to say about George. He was labeled as sweet and endearing. And everybody said he was the complete opposite of his wife. So my, my question where, what did they see in each other? Well, she saw somebody she could control. What he saw, God only knows. Anna and George, they ran a couple nursing homes in the area and she ran the staff and she ran it with an iron fist. She had two employees, Mary and Pearlie, and Anna called these two employees her two retards. They were at Anna's beck and call. They cleaned her home as well as doing the, you know, duties that they had back at the nursing facility. If Anna said jump, they said how high. And Mary remembers a time that Anna got angry and became enraged. And so she picked Pearlie up, put her head in the toilet, 
and flushed it because she felt that she was being undermined. And she did this multiple times. And Mary said that when Pearly was set back on her feet, set back, she was drenched. She was soaking wet. She also says this was not uncommon. Anna lost her temper frequently. Laura works for her mother-in-law in the office of one of the nursing homes. And because she worked for her mother-in-law, that meant that Shelly spent a lot of time with her grandmother. And it's very obvious that she learned her ways of coping with anger or sudden outbursts of disapproval because Shelly's game prior to spending so much time with her grandmother was child's play in comparison. Anna accused Les and Laura of neglecting her granddaughter, and she eventually just flat out said that Shelly needed to stay with her so she could be cared for properly. Anna was the only one that knew, quote unquote, what was best for Shelly. Laura remembers a time that she went to go pick Shelly up from Anna, and Shelly had this beautiful red curly hair, and it was just gorgeous. So Laura pulls up to pick up her stepdaughter and Shelly has basically no hair left. It's been cut off. And Anna said she cut it off because Laura wasn't taking care of it. Anna would spend a lot of time with her granddaughter. And unfortunately, Shelly was also sometimes her victim. But more times than not, she was grooming her to her vicious forms of punishment. And sometimes... It was just for the hell of it. The two, they got entertainment out of doing things like this together. It was disturbing. Shelly was a very, she was an excellent student when it came to learning her grandmother's wisdom. At 15, Shelly showed her family just what she had learned. In March of 1969, Shelly didn't show up after school one day and Laura was worried something about this time just felt off and when Laura called the school she learned it wasn't that her stepdaughter didn't come home it's she couldn't come home but as to why the school wasn't telling her so Laura gets less and they go up to the school to figure out what the hell Shelly had done and they get there and they find out Shelly has accused her father of raping her they finally hear this from the juvenile detention center. So they learned that Les was under investigation and Les Watson being who he was and being raised by the mother he had was not happy. He said, I'm calling in my own doctor. They're going to do an examination and we're going to put all of this to rest right this second because I haven't touched my daughter. And so he calls the, the family's doctor then tells him, you know, I need you to come and do an examination on Shelly and tell them that she's never been raped. She's never been touched. And so Laura and Les are sent home to wait on the results of that examination. While at home, Laura finds in Shelly's bedroom a magazine that had a dog earmarked page. And the title of the article was, I was raped at 15 by my dad. I wonder where she got the idea. So Dr. Turner, the family's doctor, he goes in the next day and he examines Shelly and the results prove she lied. He goes out and he tells everybody who is standing there waiting to hear, she's never been touched. Never. She's never been raped. Nothing. And so Shelly was released to her parents under one condition. 
they needed to get her help from a psychologist. And so they did just that. Well, guess what Shelly did? She flat out refused to participate, claiming nothing was her fault. Nothing. She took no responsibility for any of it. Nothing was her fault. As a result of this little stunt, Shelly was not welcomed back to Battleground High School. They said this to Laura when she tried to send her daughter back to school. Quote, you burn that bridge. We don't want you in class here. We don't want any more trouble. But Shelly was unfazed by her principal's candor. She didn't care. Okay, you don't want me back? Fine, I don't have to go to school. So Laura's like, okay, you got to go to school. So she applies her to a prestigious boarding school, hoping maybe that will help teach Shelly the error of her ways. They do a little investigation into Shelly and guess what they find? They don't want her either. So Laura is grasping at straws. She finally gets Shelly into the school in the city that her parents live in. And so they ship Shelly off to go live with poor Laura's family. Her parents. Shelly tortures them. <laughs> she causes this poor couple to tiptoe around their own home because they have no idea what kind of outburst will come from their granddaughter if they sneeze in the wrong direction. They are, they're just tortured by the simple fact they can't live in their own home like they did prior to their granddaughter living there. Eventually, Shelly starts to claim that her grandfather was touching her. Surprised? I'm not. They couldn't wait to send their granddaughter back to her parents' house at the summer vacation, and poor Laura knew that she could not send Shelly back there for another year. So they tried to enroll Shelly somewhere else for the next fall. And with Shelly at home, she started to take control of talking and controlling Chuck. Laura was making a little bit of progress with Chuck and his speech until Laura moved back into the house. And he... he he reclused. He let his sister do it. He, you know, I would honestly believe that he'd be terrified of her. And that's why he never said anything. It was just easier to let her do all the talking so that she wouldn't get mad at him. Everybody seemed to live like a battered spouse in Shelly's life. Shelly walked around like, Psh, I don't even care. I'm going to do this. And if you get in my way, I'm going to make you pay. She didn't care. So, Laura eventually gets Shelly into St. Mary of the Valley in Beaverton, Oregon. She takes Shelly to a Catholic boarding school. Laura hoped that the promise of those strict nuns would help her daughter tremendously. But it wasn't long before the sisters started calling home to Laura and Les, asking them to come get Shelly on the weekends. Most weekends, Shelly went home to her family. And Les and Laura had a little cabin, so that's generally where they would go to spend the weekend. Instead of taking Shelly back home, they just kind of met in the middle at this cabin. And guess what Shelly was doing back at the home? Laura and Les learned that she was crunching up glass and putting it into her peers' shoes when they crossed her path, even though they had no idea what they did to her. Surprise? No. Shelly was not invited back for the following year. And so Laura was back to square one, trying to figure out what she was gonna do with her stepdaughter. 
And Les came up with the idea to send her out to his sister's house, Katie, for the summer. And maybe that's where they could kind of decide wh what they were going to do for the following school year. Well, Shelly gets out to her Aunt Katie's house and she's telling her how horrible it is at home. They don't take care of her. They don't, you know, they don't give her anything. They barely give her enough to even get by. And so Katie calls her brother and she says, Shelly's not coming back to your house. She's staying here for the school year. Les and Laura were like, thank Jesus. And so what Katie didn't realize <laughs> that this was a big mistake because Shelly was Shelly and she just took what she was doing on the West Coast and took it with her to the East Coast. And so she was doing the same thing and it eventually drove a wedge between Katie and her husband, Frank, and they would divorce after Shelly left their home that school year. It's during that school year that Shelly meets Randy Rivardo, her first husband. Randy and Shelly, they dated in 1971, which was their senior year. And in 1972, Shelly was going back home to the West Coast and Randy was staying there on the East Coast. So Shelly goes home, Randy stays where he's at. And then by midsummer, Shelly's calling Randy, asking him to pick up and move to Battleground, Washington. Her father, Les, was going to give him a job as a maintenance man at one of the nursing facilities he now ran. And so Randy moved and settled into a rent-free apartment, thanks to Les. Um, Les and Laura saw Randy as a permanent way to have Shelly out of their house. And everybody knew what Randy was to Shelly, except for Randy. He didn't see it. And in February of 1973, at just 19 years old, Michelle Shelley Watson married Randy, becoming Mrs. Randy Rivardo. The newlyweds continued to live rent-free in a 40-foot trailer that Les had owned. And Shelley was working for him in one of the nursing homes. But it wasn't much, it wasn't long after the marriage she suddenly started to experience severe menstrual cramps lasting all month long, giving her only a couple days before the pain would return. As a result, Shelley was missing work on a daily basis and Les was unfortunately tasked with firing his own daughter. Shelley went to find work at another facility that was not owned by her family but soon the womanly troubles begin again and she was fired from that job as well. It's at this point that she decides she's going to be a stay-at-home wife, even though it put financial strain on the couple. And <clears throat> Shelly was not a stay-at-home wife. She didn't cook. She didn't clean. The only thing apparent to Randy was that she laid around and watched TV or read books all day. That's it. He couldn't see anything that his wife was doing that a wife normally would do. I laugh at this, not because this is funny at all. I laugh because as you read through this, you are seeing this pattern develop. And Shelly manages to pull one over, over and over and over on so many different people that it almost is redundant reading it. But you can't help but continue to turn the page because 
you just want to see what she does next to pull the wool over somebody's eyes until this starts to get serious. And then you gasp at every turn. So I'm not laughing because this is a funny thing. I'm laughing because Shelly was so, oh, what's the word? Narcissistic. <laughs> she just felt like she was the best wife. She was the best daughter. You know, whatever problems everybody else had was their problems, not hers. She just was God's gift to this green earth. Okay. That's why I laugh. Again, that doesn't deplete the seriousness of this. It's just, I can't believe how many people fell for this. But we wouldn't have the story if she wasn't so good at the manipulation. Please take note. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I can't believe this is happening. Soon after she decides she's going to be a stay-at-home wife, Shelly decides she needs a new car. She wants a new VW Beetle. And her and Randy couldn't afford it, so she went to her dad. And Les gave Shelly whatever she wanted, hoping that she would just go away. The accusations that Les had raped Shelly at 15 didn't necessarily tarnish his relationship or his reputation in the town of Battleground, but it left a scar. It was more like, how could you have a daughter that would make that kind of claim if it wasn't true kind of thing. And so Les just, he didn't want anything to do with her at all. Just didn't. So if she said, buy me a pony, he said, here's your pony. So Les, he, he promises Shelly's going to go buy her the car she wants. And he comes back. He's got a brand new car for her. It is a pale pink Buick convertible. Randy assures Shelly she would love this car if she would just give it a chance. Shelly's angry. That's not what she told her father she wanted. And she's pissed. She almost doesn't take the car. She's so mad. But Randy assures her she will like it. So what does Shelly do? She goes in the house that night and she sets a scene. She swallows a few aspirin. Possibly chases it with a little bit of alcohol. But the scene is set. It looks like she had emptied a bottle of sleeping pills and washed them down with a bottle of alcohol. Randy goes to try to wake his wife up and he can't get her to wake up. He's scared. She's not responding. She's not arousing. He, nothing he's doing is working. So they take Shelly to the ER and she gets her stomach pumped. That's when they learn... She only took a couple aspirin. She didn't take any sleeping pills. What she did with the pills that were in the bottle, I don't know. Uh, you piss me off. I'm going to make you pay. And I'm, Just don't get this. Just don't get this woman. And I don't get her psychology. I don't get her way of thinking. But yet I'm still fascinated that a person could think the way she does. One afternoon, Randy comes home after the sleeping pill incident, and he finds his house is completely destroyed. And when he finally finds Shelly, she's beat up and she's bloody, and he's like, holy hell, what the heck happened here? And Shelly says that a man broke into their home, beat her. Now, I can't get a clear story as far as I would say, some say, she said the man raped her and other people say that it was just a break-in. 
So I can't get a clear story there. So I'm going to say she told Randy a man broke in, possibly raped her. I don't know. It, it just looked like he beat the crap out of her. And there's no telling what's missing from the home because it's destroyed. So they call out the sheriff and Les shows up and Shelly's selling the story. She's got emotion and she's crying and she's, you know, she just looks like a battered person who's been attacked. Well, once the sheriff gets done kind of looking at the scene and going over the story with Shelly, he comes back to Les and Randy and he says, those injuries are self-inflicted. And Les and Randy aren't surprised. They really aren't. And Shelly, you know, when they confront Shelly about it, she swears up and down that somebody broke into their house. It wasn't safe living in that trailer. And they took one of Randy's rifles. I mean, she could show him what happened. The man ran through the house looking for the rifle and would hit her when she couldn't tell him where it was. And then when he found the rifle, he ran out the back door and buried it in the backyard. Because that makes sense, right? So she is going to prove to her husband and her father she's telling the truth. And she even walks him out into the backyard and shows them exactly where that rifle is buried. All of that says to me is, you just sold us on the story being completely fabricated. That was a lie. How did, why would somebody come in here, destroy the house, beat you up, possibly rape you, take the gun, and then bury it in the backyard? What would be the point of that? That doesn't, but to her, I don't care. Somebody did this. Now, why did she set up this scene? She wanted a new house. And this was the only way she could think to say the trailer wasn't safe for her to be in, being a stay-at-home wife. So, in the end, she gets a new house. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say this was her Oscar-winning performance either. I don't think she ever really has one. Shelly walked around Battleground like she was untouchable. You know, dad, she told her dad, I want a new car. She has a new car. She wants a new house. She ends up the new house. Now she's walking around town like she owns the place because didn't realize who her father was. Shelly had left most of the bills unpaid. She had tabs for the grocer and for the gas stations and those tabs were maxed out. And when they told her they were calling in the tabs that she needed to pay, she paid them with checks that bounced higher than basketballs. Randy's income alone didn't even cover half of the debt that she was racking up around town. And in the summer of 1974, Shelly announces she's pregnant. Everyone hopes that this would change the life of this habitual liar. When Randy's family learns that they are going to have a new member come into this world, they're excited. They decide they're going to come visit. They're going to bring all these baby gifts. And Shelly wants no part of this. She doesn't want him in her house. She doesn't want to talk to his family. She doesn't No, She's not doing it. So when Randy's family shows up and they have these gifts for this baby and they want to see, you know, his wife and her growing tummy. Shelly's in the bedroom, locked up. She doesn't want to see him. That's where she stays until his family goes home back east. And then some of the gifts that Randy's family brought the baby start disappearing. The books his brother brought, 
are gone. They can't find them. Shelly has no idea what happened. But as they're looking for these gifts that are starting to disappear, they notice that Randy's sister had left some clothing. And so Shelly volunteers to pack it up and mail it back to her. And so Randy lets her. And Randy's sister gets the package. It's in pristine condition. It looks great. She opens it. And every article of clothing inside of it is shredded. And so when Randy confronts Shelly about it, she says, it must have been the post office. I didn't do that. That's not how it looked when I put it in the box and sealed the box. It had to have been the post office. In February of 1975, Nikki Rivardo is born. And Shelly had been excited to be a mother. However, she and and Randy and Nikki, they go to stay with Les and Laura um, in the pretense just for a little bit, just a little help for Shelly as she's a new mother and has never done this. And so they go and stay with her parents. And what's supposed to be a week, maybe two at tops, ends up to be three months. And Randy's had enough. He wants to go home to their house and be a family. He doesn't want to live in her parents' home. So they end up going back to their house and it crushes Laura because she's absolutely in love with her new granddaughter and she's so scared of what Shelly could do. She's worried for the safety of her granddaughter. Well, once the new family moves back to their house, Randy starts getting locked out of the house and most nights he's forced to sleep in his car and he brings home her his paycheck and she's supposed to go and she's supposed to pay the bills you know she's stay-at-home mom stay-at-home wife she he's expecting her to be responsible she cashes the check and then she spends it however the heck she wants to she's not going to pay the electric bill no that's not what i want to spend it on eventually i guess randy stops kind of coming home on payday and so shelly gets with her dad and she starts to complain and so les sets it up to where Randy's paycheck is delivered straight to Shelly. This way, Randy has to go home. And this way, Shelly gets the paycheck to spend however she wants to. Win-win situation. She gets to keep her husband and she gets to spend his money. And she didn't have to work one minute for it. She didn't even care. And at this point, Randy has had enough. He calls his parents. They purchase him a plane ticket. And he leaves his wife and infant daughter. He's done. He's washing his hands. And it's not long after he gets back to his parents' house that Shelly calls and she's upset and she wants to reconcile. She wants, you know, them to be a family. And if he wants to live on the East Coast, then that's where she'll come. Her and Nikki will come and they will be a family there. Shelly and Nikki head out to the East Coast. And this little reconciliation only lasts a couple weeks. Surprise. Randy tasks her with cashing his income tax check. He signs it and is like, go cash it and go pay these bills. This is what I want you to do. And she's like, okay, that's what I'll do. However, she ends up finding somebody to endorse the check over her, forging Randy's signature. She cashes the income tax check and her and Nikki are gone. Randy doesn't ever see them again after that. He has no idea where his wife and daughter are. And Laura and Les are worried. They can't find Shelly, which means they don't 
know where their granddaughter is. And that's all they really want to know. They could care less where Shelly is. They want to know where that brand new baby is. And a couple weeks after Shelly disappears, a family member calls them back on the West Coast and was like, hey, can you come and get Nikki? Shelly said that she needed us to watch her for a little bit, but we can't get a hold of her. And she's been here for a couple weeks. And Laura is relieved. She goes and she gets this baby and she brings it home. And her and Les start to raise Nikki as their own. Shelly doesn't come home. For nearly a year, they do not see Nikki's mother. And then she shows up one day and she's there. She's there to claim her daughter. And even though Laura and Les had tried to adopt Nikki as their own, for whatever reason, they never got it finalized. And so they had no rights to this baby and Shelly did. So they set Shelly up in an apartment and that way they're hoping Nikki is taken care of. And then they start hearing about all this time that Shelly is spending outside of the home. And Laura gets to thinking that she's leaving Nikki at home by herself. And that scares her. So her and Les drive over to Shelly's apartment. And they're greeted with this man named Danny. And he has keys to Shelly's place. And so they're kind of talking in the hall. And Laura remembers him from high school and... You know, he, he grew up with Shelly, so she kind of remembers this guy. And he lets them in the apartment, and they get to looking, and Shelly's nowhere to be found. Nikki's nowhere to be found. And so they breathe a little sigh of relief. But as they really get to looking, they notice there's things in there from their cabin. These things should be at their cabin, you know, in Oregon, not in Washington. And then they find the set of keys that has a key to everything they own in Shelly's possession. She had stole them out of Laura's purse just a few days prior. So Shelly decided she wanted all this stuff for her home. She drove out to the cabin. She just used it as her personal sky mall. And took it all back to her apartment. Set herself up. And I, Les was so ready to hand the world to Shelly just to get her to go away. I'm pretty sure they were never going to get the police involved at this moment. They were just, you know, just let it be. We've got the keys back. We'll just, you know, lock them up better next time. It's not long after they go to the apartment that they hear that Shelly and Danny had moved in together. And it's not only that they moved in together, Shelly's pregnant. In June 2nd of 1978, Shelly and Danny marry in a small wedding chapel. The newlyweds move into a home that was promised to Shelly by her grandma, Anna. In August of 1978, Samantha was born. And Danny was a good father, not only to his newborn daughter, but to Nikki as well. And Nikki is old enough now to know Danny as her dad. She didn't really know Randy. She wasn't old enough to remember him. And for all intents purpose for Nikki, Danny is her father. But it isn't long before Danny and Shelly's relationship starts to deteriorate. They are fighting 
they're screaming at each other. They're physically laying hands on each other. They are breaking dishes. There's holes in the drywall. And a smart guess would be that they probably fit Danny's fist. I mean, they are knocked down, dragging out until one of them gets up and leave. And usually it's Danny. And Shelly loves to load the girls up and go hunt her husband down after their, one of their arguments. It's almost like a game to her. And she never fails. She finds him and she brings him home. But as quickly as her second marriage began, it ends. And Les is left to fork over the money for the divorce. So Shelly is twice married, two children, two different baby daddies. She has just snowballed her life so quickly in the short years that she's been an adult, quote unquote. And in 1983, the young Nikki, who thought Danny was her father, is introduced to a new man that she is to call dad, and his name is Dave Notek. Poor Nikki, she is so confused, and she ends up hating Dave because he took her dad away. He took Danny away from her. And it's no time before Shelly picks up Nikki and Samantha and they move to Raymond with Dave. The home that Shelly lived in from her grandmother is under foreclosure because Shelly hasn't been paying the taxes on it. And so Dave says, you know, come, come live with me and I promise I will get your house back for you. And so Shelly loads everybody up and she moves them out to Raymond, Washington. Nikki shares a time when the family first moves to Raymond. She says that one night she woke up all of a sudden and she was unable to breathe because there was this pillow being pressed to her face. And Nikki screams out for her mother and suddenly the pillow's gone and there's Shelly and she's consoling her daughter who is scared and crying and telling her it's okay, you know, it's all just a bad dream. It's okay, it wasn't real. And Nikki knows it was real. And she tells her mother it was real. And Shelly gives her this look that burned into the back of Nikki's mind. She'll never forget her mother looking at her and basically telling her through her eyes, challenge me. She's a young child. She's young and her mother is already starting. Dave is fascinated by Shelly. He's in love. She's a gorgeous, drop-dead, redhead, beautiful woman. And by all intents and purposes, she is. Look her up. She was very pretty. And Dave felt like Shelly was too good for him. And in any other life, yeah, maybe. But in this life, Dave was too good for Shelly. He's in love. He's head over heels. And he's fascinated because not long after they met and started talking to one another, Shelly shared with Dave that she had cancer and that she was battling for her life. And the doctors had told her that she would not see 30. And Dave said that he was in love with Shelly by that point. But really what sold it for him was he could not imagine those two little girls growing up without their mother. And he didn't want to know what would happen to them. He just didn't. 
So December 28th of 1987, Dave makes an honest woman out of Shelly. And he marries her in a small ceremony with only one witness, Kathy Lerano, Shelly's best friend and hairdresser. Kathy becomes a lasting part of the no-tex life. Les handed his daughter away one more time, hoping, you know, third time's the charm. He plays nice for Shelly, although he's not forgotten what she tried to do with him. And Shelly, she plays nice, even though to everyone but him, she hated her father. She hated him. She eventually breaks down after marrying Dave and tells her dad that she has cancer and he takes it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, after being lied to so many times over the years, I can imagine Les going, okay, yeah, sure. But she sells it with a heartfelt letter to her father. And it says, quote, I'll always be so proud to have you as a dad. The older I get, the more I realize how much I appreciate you. Dad, I'm so full of pain. I just want out. You've known so little of my life for such a long time. Maybe the next time around, I won't make the same mistakes. I'm not strong enough to go through the months ahead, but I love you, Dad, and I've missed you. Love, Shell. To any other person in the world, that would be touching. That would be a letter of a person who is truly fighting every day to wake up and have one more day on this earth. But when it comes from Shelley Notek, it means no more to the person she wrote it to than the crumpled up Kleenex in the trash can. It's nothing. Every time Dave and Shelley got into an argument thereafter, he would take the very hurtful words that Shelley would say to him to heart. Even claiming one time after an argument, he got in the truck and he had a gun and he was contemplating suicide because he loved Shelley so much, but he could not give her what she deserved. And every time she belittled him or cussed him out or struck him or even locked him out of the house was almost too much for his interbeing, his soul. With each argument, his mental health started to deteriorate. Shelley assured to him this was the way marriages worked out their issues, but that's not the way Dave was raised. His parents didn't work their issues out in that manner, not in front of the children. And he knew this was not something that was normal, but he also knew that he was not going to say anything to Shelley. He decided he would take the lies, but sleep evaded him for much of his life with Shelley. And he was always cautious of the ever pending doom from the wrath of Shelley. Soon the family moves into this beautiful craftsman house. It's a farm home and it's located into the depths of the trees, away from peering eyes. It's got this beautiful landscape, but from the road, you can't see the house. And Shelley loves it. She is in love. It's perfect. It's got, you know, it's big enough for their family. And she gets to decorate it to the nines because Shelly may not be the perfect wife or mother, but she sure knew how to dress for it. And their home looked like she was. And it's in this home that things really start to take a very dark turn for the entire NoTech family. Because it didn't matter what was in with arm's reach. 
If Shelly was mad and enraged, she would pick it up and she would turn it into a weapon. Whether it's the spatula or a fishing pole or electric cord, whatever she had close to her, if the girls misbehaved and it angered her enough that she decided she was going to beat them, whatever she got her hand on was perfectly fine. And sometimes that misbehavior to the children wasn't clear. They weren't sure of what they had just done to anger their mother because she would be fine one moment and then the next they're crying and apologizing and they're not really sure why their mother is beating the crap out of them, but they swear they will never ever do it again. If Shelly decided that the punishment worked, then she went back to the drawing board and decided and tried to figure out how she could make it even more effective the next time she needed a punishment. Shelly lived off of the endorphins that she got through the rush of beating her children. That high was a high that most drug addicts chase time and time again. And for Shelly, it was her drug. No matter what the infraction was, almost all of the beatings ended in bloodshed and the promise to never, ever, ever do it again. On one occasion, Nikki runs from her mother. She is scared to death at what is coming her way. If Shelly grabbed, you know, she didn't know. She, she was terrified. Shelly gets close enough to her in the kitchen and grabs a hold of her daughter and she, she pushes her into the wall. And it's in that moment that Nikki legitimately gets nailed to the wall. There was a nail sticking out of the sheetrock. And when she grabbed Nikki and shoved her into the wall, that nail went into Nikki's head. And it's only in that moment when she realizes what happens does she back down. Not only are she beating the crap out of her children, and she, for whatever reason, she has it out for Nikki more than she did Sammy, but she's also raining down this tirade of mental abuse. She's, you know, she told Nikki, you know, this wouldn't have happened if you wouldn't have run from me. You know, I wouldn't have lost control. Or if they would have said sorry sooner, then she wouldn't have to beat them until they were bleeding. It was never her fault that she lost complete control when it came to physically putting her hands on her children. It was always their fault. If they wouldn't have ran, if they would have apologized, if they would have just loved her more, she wouldn't have done it. It's always somebody else's fault in Shelly's eyes. The one thing that she could count on with Nikki, Nikki was old enough to be able to go to school and recount these, but because Nikki was so withdrawn socially, she was not a social butterfly by any means. She knew that she could dish out whatever punishment she wanted on her oldest daughter and Nikki wouldn't say a word. She was positive. So Shelly decides to play a game with her daughters, one that she learned from her grandma, Anna. And Christmas Day comes and the kids receive all of these great gifts and they are having the best Christmas. They can't believe their mother is doing so much for them when they thought she hated them. To anybody looking in at this moment, you would miss the signs. But if you just looked into Shelly's eyes, you could see what was coming. 
Within days of the seemingly normal holiday, Shelley begins taking all of the gifts back as a punishment for them being ungrateful or maybe they have committed some transgression that they don't even know what it was. Shelley had this thing. She would watch the girls play and the things that they loved the most are the things that would disappear the fastest. The wrapping paper wouldn't even hit the ground. If she knew that the girls loved it more than anything else they got, she would take that from them almost immediately. And she would go and hide it, almost taunting the girls to go figure out where mom hid their favorite gift. But she always knew if those girls got into it and got that gift down, she knew. She'd set a trap for them every single time. The abuse Shelley dished out to the girls was always backed by the ever-doting husband. Maybe the way Dave thought was if he backed his wife, they wouldn't fight. Therefore, she would not do the mental and physical abuse towards him. And I feel like this is the same for every person she abuses in her life. They think that if they help her, if they stay on one side, they aren't on the receiving end. And that is better than nothing, you know. And she decides she's going to take her abuse to her daughters a whole new way. And she tells the girls that the water well was almost dry and that they needed to go and ask her before using the bathroom. And there was absolutely no showering. What the kids did not know is they did have a well. Um, but they also had city water lines, so they didn't depend on that well for their sole source of water. When the girls are left alone, they would immediately run to the bathroom, go to the restroom, take a shower as fast as they could, and then Sammy would dry the faucets and the floors and hide the damp towels. Then they would go and try to make themselves look unclean, even though they were clean. There was to be absolutely no evidence of what they had done when their mother returned. Sometimes their mother would come back with things that she had purchased for the home. She collected knickknacks like they were worth a million bucks. The house, if there was a spot empty, she found something to put in it. Sometimes she would ask the girl's opinion. You know, where should we put this? What should we do with this? And it's in those moments that the girls feel like their opinion matters, you know, and, and you can't blame them for taking and holding on to those moments because they're children. They want their mother to love them. They want her to pay them attention, not in an unhealthy way, just in a normal way. And so when she would, you know, come home with a new knickknack or a new candle or whatever, and she wanted to know whether they thought it looked good in that spot or maybe it needed to be switched out with something else, whatever, the girls thrived on that, as any child would. You can't, you can't blame them for taking and holding on to those moments. With the home being tucked back out of sight, Shelley took her punishments even further with Nikki. And she developed this game. I say game. She developed this punishment that was not only going to punish the girls, but humiliate them as well. It was called wallowing. It was a nighttime punishment and it was done outside, whether it was rain or shine, cold or hot, didn't matter. When Shelly would go in, whenever she decided to invoke the wallowing, she would scream at Nikki 
and tell her to strip down and go outside. <clears throat> and at first, Nikki wasn't sure what this was. And so she gets naked and she goes outside. Her mother instructs her to squat down in the dirt. And then Dave turns on the water hose and sprays his stepdaughter down as Shelly just berates her with hurtful word after hurtful word after hurtful word. And then she is made to roll around in the mud like a pig. And if it's cold outside, then the edges of the mud pit or mud puddle would be sharp with ice crystals. And so not only is it cold and freezing and she's dirty, and now she's getting cuts and scrapes from these ice crystals. Nikki just couldn't understand what she had done to deserve this. But in the back of her mind, she was so worried that she would get pneumonia and die. Yet for her, the thought of dying meant her only way out. And she's a young child. And to be thinking about dying as her only way out is so painful to hear as a mother and a parent. I'm going to try and keep my opinion out of that. Nikki's punishments always seem to be worse than Sammy's. Um, Sammy could commit the same transgression that Nikki would have to wallow for. And all she would get was like the backhand or a, a leather belt to her backside, whatever. It seems like what went for one didn't go for the other. And Sammy latched onto that. She seemed to understand how to talk to her mother in a way that was almost buttering up Shelly's ego. And maybe that's why she didn't come down as hard on Sammy. Or maybe it was the fact that very seldom did Sammy fight her back. Generally, if her mother wanted to spank her or whatever, she didn't try to run. She didn't try to fight it. And that could be another reason. Because... Nikki would almost flee at the very first opportunity she saw, and most people would. <clears throat> Sometimes, Nikki had a hard time trusting her sister because there were a few times that Sammy told on Nikki, and even though now she wishes she hadn't, at the time she was just trying to survive the day. And so, at the time, yeah, Nikki received the worst punishment and Sammy was left alone. But you almost can't blame her for that. And it's so awful to say that it was okay for her to do these things to her sister, even though we know it wasn't. Nikki's corporal punishments continued and Shelly starts to lock her upstairs. And at first it's just in her bedroom and she's okay with that. And then the next time she's locked in the closet and she's okay with that as well. It's more of a walk-in closet than it is just a, you know, little six foot closet. Nikki is okay with this punishment because the way she sees it, as long as she's out of sight, she's out of mind. Once her space got dwindled down to the closet, she was given just a bucket and we all know what she needed to do with that bucket. We don't have to talk about it. Nikki would spend weeks locked away in her closet with this bucket. And it's during these times that Nikki learned that she loved to read because her mother stored all of her books inside of Nikki's closet. And during all the times she was locked in that closet, she managed to read every single one of them. When Nikki would be let out, it wasn't long before she was sent back to the confinement 
And it's during one of her rare outings that the next incident occurs. For whatever reason, Shelly loses her composure and Nikki takes off running. She runs through the house as her mother is saying that she's going to beat the shit out of her. And when Shelly finally gets close enough to Nikki, she grabs a hold of her and shoves her hard. And Nikki goes through the sliding glass door. In this moment, Nikki saw something change in her mother. And she did something she had never heard her mother do before. Shelly told Nikki after she realized that she had hurt her daughter bad, she was sorry. And that was new. She didn't apologize. She never took responsibilities for what she did. But in that moment, she was sorry. In the middle of 1988, Shelly takes in her nephew Shane from her brother Paul. And Paul is in and out of prison like it's a revolving door. So she takes Shane in, and it's not long after they move Shane in that he ends up with this chore list that's a mile long that only seems to grow. It never shrinks. And Shelly works poor Shane like a dog. And he learned very quickly he was to be scared of his aunt, never wanting to rock the boat. Shane adored Sammy, but his real confidant was Nikki. They were closer to age. They seemed to be kindred spirits and understand kind of where each other were coming from. Shane's bedroom was in the basement. And at first he has a blank, he, you know, he has a bed, he's got blankets, he's got pillows. He's got what you normally would have in a room. And slowly he notices things are disappearing. First it's his pillows, then it's his blankets, and then it's his bed entirely. And he is made to sleep on the concrete floor with nothing. Her next round of punishment came when she took away his showering privileges. And when Shane first moved to Raymond, he was a new kid at school. You know, he was dark, he was olive complected. He had, which was not anything different. He was just, a, he had that olive tone to him. He had darker hair. He was just, the kids loved him. But when his aunt took away his showering privileges, he went from the mysterious new kid to the stinky, smelly, gross child. Nobody wanted to be around. And that's exactly what she wanted. She wanted everybody to dislike Shane because how dare him go out and get more attention than her? As Nikki and Shane grew together, grew closer, they would often play this game where they would... Oh, they would... I, they would kind of... I, I don't know how to say this because <laughs> it... I'm, it is what it is. They would say to each other, well, what if she died this way? What what would happen to mom? Because Shane called Shelly and Dave mom and dad. And so they almost played this sick game, even though they knew neither one of them was ever going to be strong enough to do it. But for them, it was their way to mentally get through what they're dealing with. They also would 
fantasize about running away together and getting out of there, getting away from her. You know, they knew she was batshit crazy and they wanted away. They knew this wasn't normal. But they were kids. There wasn't a whole lot they could do. With Nikki and Shane go being closer, Shelly caught on to that. So she started punishing them together. They wallowed together, both of them naked. They're both old enough to not be naked around each other. And one time she made the pair strip completely naked and then slow dance in the living room together. They are crying. They know this isn't normal. They know they shouldn't be this close to each other without clothing on. And Shelly is snickering and laughing and degrading them. She finds it funny. Now, I'm not sure what her fascination is about everybody being freaking naked, but it seemed to be the required ingredient when she was building a punishment. It's a weird formula for her, but that's just the way she worked. Christmas of 1988, the household got some news from Shelly. She was pregnant and the kids were overjoyed. They couldn't believe they were going to get another family member. They were so excited for a new sibling. But Shelly wasn't quite finished. Remember Kathy Loreno, the witness from her and Dave's wedding? Well, she was moving in with them to help Shelly. When Dave asked why Kathy really needed to move in, Shelly was like, well, I'm pregnant, so I have to go to the doctor for that. And I have cancer and I still have to go to the doctor for that. And I'm going to be tired. So Kathy's going to do the things around the house that I can't do. And Kathy's like, yeah, no, I'm going to pick up the slack because, you know, she'd work so hard. Poor Kathy. Kathy was moved into this space that was between the girls' room upstairs. It wasn't a bedroom per se. It was almost like a little nook up there. But Kathy moved in. She had a bed and she had furniture and all of her knitting supplies. It was Kathy's space. Kathy worshipped Shelly and Shelly ate up the worship. She loved it. It was feeding her ever-expanding ego. Kathy would scold the children, yelling at them as to why they couldn't just behave because no one worked harder than Shelly did. And she just didn't understand why they couldn't appreciate their mother. Kathy was there to take Shelly to all of the overwhelming doctor's appointments. And when it came time for Shelly to give birth to the new baby, Kathy drove her to the hospital and Dave followed behind her in his car. She wouldn't even let her husband take her to the hospital to have his child. In June of 1989, Tori Notek was born. And Dave could not believe how beautiful she was. And he was given the privilege to hold her first, even before Kathy. Nikki and Sammy adored their little sister. They loved her. But it was no sooner that Tori came home that she had to go back to the hospital. And according to Shelley, she had quit breathing, but she was able to revive her. And so that little stink caused Tori to spend seven more days in the neonatal unit at the hospital. Now, Tori was not premature, 
but Shelly told Nikki and Sammy that she was. Things seemed to be getting better at home. Tori had to have this special bed that was rigged with monitors to go off if Tori's heart rate dropped too low or if she had stopped breathing like she had before. Well, Nikki came down the stairs one day unexpectedly and it's just in time to see her mother holding a pillow over Tori. It was in that moment that Nikki and Sammy decided they were going to keep a closer eye out for their little sister. In Dave's eyes, Shelly loved to bathe and dress little Tori up, showing her off to everyone she could. Dave says she was the best baby mom you'd ever see. However, when Danny was asked about how Shelly was as a mother when Sammy was born, he told a whole totally different story. He remembers coming home one time and it was before he was supposed to be home and Shelly hears him and he catches Shelly getting up and she's running to the crib and grabbing Sammy to make it look like she had been holding Sammy all day long. But when he looked in the crib, it was full of dirty diapers and dirty bottles. And when he changed her diaper, she had the most horrendous diaper rash. He said it was awful. So Dave and Danny have two different perspectives of how Shelly was as a mother. One time during a birthday party, Shelly had thrown for Sammy. She had pulled out all the stops and she did this with every child's birthday. She made this huge spectacle. She was like, look at all these things I'm giving you. And Kathy had given her a necklace, a heart-shaped pendant, gold necklace. And Sammy loved it. She loved it. She was kind of a girlier girl. And so I think Shelly noticed and she asked Sammy, what was her favorite birthday present? And of course, Sammy says, Kathy's necklace. Well, Shelly beat the crap out of Sammy, calling her an ungrateful brat and telling her that the necklace wasn't even a new piece of jewelry. It was something she already had. Why would she like something used over something that she bought her brand new? Sammy learned from then on out, whenever asked what her favorite gift was, no matter the holiday, it was always something Shelly gave her, not anyone else. Shelly calls up her stepmother, Laura, and she had been divorced from Les at this point for a couple couple years. And when Shelly called her stepmother, she told her the cancer was back. It was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then a couple days later, Shelly calls Laura back again. And she says, it's not lymphoma. It's cancer of the pituitary gland. Little side note here. Your lymph nodes and your pituitary gland typically don't coincide like that. That's a colossal mistake by any doctor. Even if they are just starting out, even if they are just starting medical school, you don't mix up lymphoma with a pituitary gland cancer. You just don't. And Laura knows this. And she can't believe that any doctor would make that kind of mistake. Shelly was sent off to see specialist and Kathy assured Laura that she would help Shelly. Laura didn't need to come and do anything with the grandchildren. She was doing it all. That's why she was there. 
Shelley, once again, was living on quote-unquote borrowed time. Dave knew a different story, though. He had known for Shelley to have cancer the entire time. Not that it come back. She had been battling this the entire time he's known her, even through the pregnancy with Tori. Kathy begins to scream the calls coming in from Laura, Shelly's stepmother, and only feeding her little bits of information regarding Shelly's treatments. And most of the time, the response was, Shelly's holding strong. She's doing good. She's holding on. Shelly was thankful for Kathy's presence in the no-tech home. Kathy had taken on the housework, the cooking, the cleaning, and making sure the kids were being taken care of while Shelly rested, being tired from all of that treatment. Behind closed doors, Shelly was slowly shifting her viciousness to Kathy. Soon, Laura caught on to Shelly, talking to the doctors she knew from working in the medical field and telling them about Shelly's treatments. She knew these treatments were going on for far too long. Cancer was not treated this way. Laura finally calls her stepdaughter out. She says, quote, I've talked to some doctors and we all think you're lying again. Shelly flies off the handle and starts screaming at Laura over the phone before she slams it down. Then Kathy calls Laura back, telling her that she really upset Shell, but Laura was not falling for it. She was going to make Kathy see. She says, quote, Kathy, this is a bunch of bullshit. Cancer isn't like this. But Kathy was not hearing it. And then all of a sudden, Dave jumps on the phone and he starts questioning Laura on what kind of mother she was. And Laura's like, have you taken her to the doctors? Have you actually gone inside? Doctors are big on including the family in the part of the treatment. And he said, of course he'd taken them to the doctor. Of course he'd gone inside, but Shelly was too proud, so he stayed in the waiting room. But Laura suspected that poor Dave's sitting in this waiting room for eight hours. By the way, each treatment lasts eight hours, which is bull. But anyways, so here's poor Dave waiting in this waiting room. And Shelly's sneaking out the back. I don't know, going off to lunch, shopping, going to the movies. I have no idea what she's doing for eight hours. She certainly isn't upstairs getting any kind of chemo. She's, it's just not happening. With the things shifting in the no-tech home, Kathy was oblivious to the game that Shelly was starting to play. And this game proved to be brutal, torturous, and deadly. Shelly had managed to put a wedge between Kathy and her family, telling Kathy that they didn't care about her like Shelly did. And Kathy was fading away while everyone watched. No matter how hard Kathy worked, it was never good enough. Shelly berated her on her work ethic, chipped away at her personality. Soon, Shelly turned to physical redirection with Kathy, using whatever was close to corral her friend back in. Once Kathy was aware of her misdoings, then Shelly would hug her and hand her a bunch of pills. The kids watched as Shelly slowly tortured her once best friend. Nikki remembers watching as Kathy and Shelly were outside in a knockdown drag out. Kathy is a much bigger person than Shelly, but it was Kathy that was on the losing end as Shelly was still pregnant 
during this, this occurrence. So here's a pregnant Shelly and here's Kathy. I'm sure she doesn't want to hurt her friend. She knows she's pregnant. Maybe that's why, but I'm also not going to sit there and let you beat the crap out of me either. So I don't know, but two different mindsets. And I hate to even try to think like Kathy was thinking at that time, because Lord knows it would hurt you to your very core. Kathy soon began being accused of sleepwalking in the home. Shelly says Kathy was getting up in the middle of the night, sleepwalking into the kitchen and eating the food. Kathy could not remember doing this, but Shelly assures her that she's watched it happen time and time again. She even gets the kids to do part of the, yes, you have Kathy, you know, and this was her favorite game of all. And it's called gaslighting. And it's, it's okay, so it's Shelly and the kids are telling Kathy, this is what you're doing. But Kathy cannot remember doing it. And slowly she starts to apologize for something she's not even doing. That's what gaslighting is. And you see it a lot in spouse abuse. Um, and you can see it in this kind of abuse. Shelly didn't discriminate. Kid, spouse, friend, she'd abuse you all. She didn't care. She got one of the children to help her one time to sell this lie by putting a half-eaten piece of pie under Kathy's bed. But everybody knew full and well that it was Shelly's idea to put it there. As the weeks passed on, surprised Kathy would be tormented over her loss of memory again and again with a ton of half-eaten food under her bed. Once Kathy was convinced of her late-night escapades in the kitchen, then Shelly shifted on her again, claiming now Kathy was sleepwalking all the way to the basement naked and going into Shane's room. She even got Shane to say he saw it. But Shane tells Nikki it never happened, but he was too scared to say that it didn't, afraid of what Shelly would do to him. At this point, Kathy is embarrassed and ashamed. She can't believe of all these things she's doing while she's sleeping. With each accusation, she stands her ground less and less. She slowly starts to believe these lies. And when everybody's telling you this is what you're doing, it's really hard not to believe it because how could so many people come together and lie? One time during one of these altercations regarding Kathy's sleeping habits, Shelly gets mad and they're at the top of the stairs and Shelly plants her foot into the middle of Kathy's back and kicks her down the stairs. The kids watch as Kathy took beating after beating after beating, completely dumbfounded as to why Kathy just wouldn't get up and leave. She's an adult. She can leave whenever she wants to. But that's the thing about Shelly. She completely tears down your resolve. She tears down your support system. She tears down everything until she has complete control. And the kids know this, but at the same time, they cannot believe an adult is allowing this to happen to herself. They are just baffled. Didn't take very much time before Shelly starts to enlist the kids to help her with punishing Kathy. 
Kathy was made to walk around the home in only a single pair of panties and one bra. Most of her prized possessions had been taken away from her when Shelley saw fit. She controlled when Kathy went to the restroom. She went, she controlled when she bathed. And if she did bathe, it was to be done outside in the garden hose with bleach. Nikki and Sammy were made to snap rubber bands at Kathy. Shane was forced to kick and punch Kathy at Shelly's request. Kathy started to lose weight quickly. She was a heavier set girl, but her weight loss just was rapid. Her skin started to turn purple, blue, black, and green with all of the bruising and cuts. Her teeth were eroding and beginning to fall out and Shelly chopped off her hair. The very essence of her being, she's a hairdresser. They tend to take very good care of their own hair and Shelly took that away from her. Anything to demoralize her, she did it. The kids just watched in horror, but there was nothing that they could do to help Kathy. And Kathy knew that they wanted to help, but that they couldn't. Everybody abused by Shelly could do nothing but sit there and hope the next outburst didn't fall on them. And that's the thing. If Kathy was getting the abuse, then it wasn't happening to the kids. And even though the kids hated feeling like that, they knew that if Shelly was focused on Kathy, then she wouldn't be focused on them. Family vacations were sparse, with Dave being the only one to have an income coming into the home, but they still managed to go camping. That was an obtainable thing for them. And they would load the car down with camping gear, and they piled into the car, but there just wasn't room for Kathy. So in the trunk she went. Kathy never uttered a word. She crawled in, and she never complained, and she made the ride in the trunk. Kathy was only brought camping for one reason, to do the things that Shelly wanted her to do. She was not allowed to sit around and roast marshmallows. She was not allowed to sit and have coffee with Shelly and Dave in the morning. She was there to do as she was told. She put up all the camping gear. She cleaned everything. She made sure everything was exactly as Shelly wanted it. Kathy wasn't even allowed to sleep in the tent with the family. The very first night, she was made to sleep under the car. The next night, Shelly thought it would be so funny if she slept in the trunk. Kathy was slowly starting to lose her strength as the days went by. Any humility that she had had, it was gone. Was it the pills that she was being fed that allowed her to feel as though she could handle what was being done? Or was it more of a Stockholm Syndrome? Why was a grown woman allowing her to be ridiculed by this monster? I can't figure that out. And I know in the back of my head, it's because of the manipulation. I know it is. But at the same time, I hate to think that someone would allow these things to be done to themselves. And I think that's why it's so hard. Kathy was being fed pills, um, and amongst some of those pills found were lorazepam, nitroquick, atenanol, altase, Paxil, and Prozac. And Prozac was the one that the kids identified the most as being fed to Kathy. And this would just completely obliterate any inhibition she had. Prozac is a very powerful 
mind-altering drug. And it's, it's prescribed for those who have the mental illnesses that require it. Kathy did not. Shelly used this as a way to hold her power over Kathy even more. Shane began to see even more humiliating punishments. One time, Shelly forced him to get naked. She duct taped his wrist and his ankles together. Then she rubbed icy hot on his penis. He screamed and he cried as she laughed and ridiculed him. And this was something she began to use frequently with him when he did anything wrong. One time he was duct taped and Shelly decided she was leaving and she put Sammy in charge of watching Shane. And like every other time that Shelly left, Sammy got up and went to the restroom. And when she came back down, Shane was gone and she couldn't find him. And her mother came home and they went looking for Shane and they couldn't find him. And eventually Sammy finds him. He is in the neighbor's woodshed and she tells him, you have to go home. You have to. Mom's mad and you know she's going to find you. He is naked. He is scared. He is crying and he can't help but follow Sammy back home. And Shelly flips the script here. When he comes back in and she sees he's crying and he's scared, she becomes the concerned mother and she's like, why would you do that to the family? You know, we love you. Why would you run away from us? We just, we want the best things for you, Shane. And those are words you want to hear, even though there was no truth behind them. Well, there was truth. I mean, the girls absolutely adored Shane, but there was no heartfelt behind it from Shelly. She didn't care. Other than she just lost one of the people she could abuse. When Tori got old enough, her crib became too much in the master bedroom. So Shelly moved her into the space in between the girls' room. And Kathy was giving a cozy new room in the basement. It was close to Shane's room. And it turned out to be the oil furnace room. And... The more I look into this, because I'm from the South, we don't have oil furnaces. This is a diesel fuel kind of smell that comes from these furnaces. And it's not a place where anybody should be spending long periods of time in. But that's where Kathy now lives. Kathy, she went to the room and she stayed and she didn't complain any. Sammy was distraught. She hated that Kathy had to live in this new space. And so she went to her room and she grabbed some posters and she was going to brighten the place up for Kathy. Kathy begged her not to do that. She knew what would happen if Shelly found out. And Kathy and Sammy both received discipline for this. Even though it was a gesture from the heart from Sammy, Shelly hated that she got just that small little bit of attention. One night after a freeze thaw and refreeze of the snowfall that had fallen, Kathy had done something to piss off Shelly once again. And she found a new way to torture the already weakened Kathy. Kathy stood at the top of the hill that was behind the home in the backyard. She was naked, shaking, and cold. Dave and Shelly made her slide down the frozen surface of the hill on her bare backside. 
Kathy hesitated at first, and Dave would nudge her just enough to get her to slipping and sliding down the hill. Shelly screamed at Kathy to get up and do it again. Over and over, her body raw from the crystals of ice, tears falling down her face, pleading Shelly to let her stop. The next morning, the kids went out and there was a blood trail down the hill from where Kathy had been forced to slide down over and over and over again. They all hurt for Kathy, but at the end of the day, they were glad it wasn't them. A story started to emerge when Kathy's mother needed help after having heart surgery. And they knew the place she was staying was with Shelly Notek. And so they called and told her, you know, your mother needs you. And Shelly said, you know, she's gone to live with her boyfriend, Rocky. And they hadn't seen her. She gets Kathy to send her mother a blurry photo of herself next to Rocky's semi. He's a long haul truck driver. And a letter, and it's a plausible letter from Kathy telling her family that she's fine, that she and Rocky were in love, and it was nothing too far-fetched for Kathy's family to believe just yet. In the summer of 1992, Shelly and Dave purchased a new home, in a and it was a large step down from the Craftsman farmhouse they were living in. Shelly was pissed that they had to move, but Dave promised her he would fix it up. The home was not as secluded as the farmhouse was, and the kids hoped that since it could be seen from the road, Shelly wouldn't make Kathy go outside naked anymore, and possibly the wallowing would stop. Turns out the house was more secluded than the kids thought. The property also had a few outside buildings, chicken coops, barn, well house, and a pump house. The home was way too small for everyone to live in. Tori went back to sleeping in her parents' room, and Nikki and Sammy were forced to share a bedroom, and then Shane actually got to sleep in the closet in Nikki and Sammy's room. Shelly, she had expectations for the new home, and she didn't care if everyone else had to work day and night. She wanted them done until she was satisfied with all of the improvements. At this point, Dave was gone during the week and then commuted five hours home from work only on the weekends, and it's just so he could do the list of crap that Shelly wanted him to do. Nikki was tasked with painting the old barn red, and Shelly gave her a one-inch paintbrush to do it with. It took Nikki the entire summer. Sammy had to paint the pole building, and she obviously got better painting supplies. And Shane was stuck with cleaning up the yard and stacking the wood. Shelly sat on the couch and she would check on their work occasionally. The punishments continued, but mostly to Kathy and Shane. Nikki's punishments were saved for an audience, like getting slapped at the bus stop once the bus was fully stopped in front of her, or Shelly showing up to the school to tear her locker apart because Nikki stole mascara from her. How could she do that? Kathy's presence started to become worrisome for Dave, and he started to ask his wife, is she okay? And Shelly assured him she was helping Kathy and Kathy was going to get better. And she says she's protecting Kathy from the kids because the kids are the ones that are abusing Kathy. And Shelly is just protecting her from them. One afternoon, Kathy disappears. None of the kids could seem to find her. Shelly takes off looking for her to hunt her down. 
And she brings Kathy back looking better than she had in weeks. She had some new clothes that were actually clothing, no underwear. She'd had a new hairdo. Shelly was trying to, what? she wasn't trying to do anything. She manipulated Kathy into coming back home. That's what she did. Kathy would try escaping over and over, even completely naked, running across the front yard, just a mere week or so after the new clothing. Shelly played off <laughs> Kathy running naked across the front yard as her, it was her. She had been shocked in the hot tub, which caused her to jump out butt naked and run in front of the house. Kathy was finally let out of the pump house to do some weeding in the yard, but Shelly wasn't satisfied. Dave was ordered to punish Kathy by kicking her over and over and over. No matter what Kathy did, nothing was ever good enough for Shelly. And if the kids tried to help, they were inhibiting her from getting better. One afternoon, as Kathy was being walked back to the pole house, something was in the way that she walked, hurt Shelly, and she pushed Kathy. And Kathy fell flat on her face, never once putting her hands or arms out to break her fall. And poor Kathy screamed in pain. Kathy's health was deteriorating faster and faster and faster. In a small chance of hope, Shane went out to let Kathy out. And he opened the door of the pump house and he yelled for her to run and run now. She felt trapped. She felt like Shane was setting her up. And she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't leave that pump house. She said no. Nikki and Shane both knew that Kathy was going to die if she didn't get out. But Kathy refused to run anymore. Shelly wasn't a doctor, but she had studied enough medical books in between the Dean Koontz and Stephen King that she read to know a thing or two. Like smelling salts. She would use them when Kathy, when she would pass out during one of Shelley's tirades of abuse. She would push Kathy until she passed out from being weak and then crack one open, wake her up, and start from the beginning. Once when Sammy had a headache, she went to her mother hoping she would get an aspirin or a Tylenol. And her mother gave her a pill that tasted kind of funny. It wasn't long before she was out on the front porch, unable to get up. Shane helped her up knowing that Shelly had given Sammy a muscle relaxer. Laura and her daughter, Carol, which was Shelly's half-sister, decided they were going to drive to Raymond and confront Shelly about this old cancer crap once and for all. She's still selling that, by the way. She doesn't, don't forget, she still has cancer. Shelly opens the door, and she has on this full face of white makeup, poorly applied, by the way, because Carol is doing everything she can to hold in this laugh. She had shaved off her eyebrows, proving that she was losing her hair due to chemo. Laura demanded to see the bills. She told Shelly she was concerned with her doctor's courses of treatments and she really wanted to help her get the best treatment available. And Shelly told her mom about how she would get real sick after treatments, but Laura knew what she should be saying and Shelly was being as evasive as possible. At one point, Shelly excuses herself to go to the restroom, and she comes out moments later, and she's in tears. She has locks of her hair in her hand. And it's at this point that Laura points out that hair does not break off at the middle of the shaft. It falls out from the root. Another obvious sign that this is a lie. Laura even goes into the bathroom, and in the bottom of the wastebasket is hair and scissors with strands of red hair still stuck between the blades. 
No matter what evidence Laura showed Shelley, she would never amuse her mother with the truth. One time, Shelley found out that there was a spaghetti dinner for a classmate of Nikki's who had cancer, and she lost it. She didn't understand why Nikki wouldn't do something like that for her. Did she not love her enough? Did she not want her mother to get better? Dave watched his wife and could defend her actions towards the kids. They were bad kids. They misbehaved to, just to get a rise out of Shelley. They were failing in school. They caused chaos. Wherever they went, all of this, he could see why Shelley was punishing them. But Kathy, he was having a harder time defending his wife. She wasn't a child. She was an adult. And she actively let Shelley beat and berate her. Dave could see where things were headed with Kathy, and he was scared. He was terrified. Her physical appearance had changed drastically over the last four and a half years. She lost over a hundred pounds. Her teeth had rotted out from her head. She, her hair was falling out. She had poor nutritious values. You know what I mean? She's not, she's not eating. She's not bathing. She's how she still breathes after so many years of abuse is just baffling. Dave finally goes to his wife and suggests that they take Kathy somewhere and just drop her off. She would never know how to get back to their house and they wouldn't have to worry about it. But Shelly assures him that Kathy is going to get better. One afternoon, as Shelly lays around on the couch, she caught sight of a Tupperware container uh, full of feces on the kitchen floor. And she went from zero to 60, beating Kathy with a nearby cord until Kathy was crying and apologizing, saying she would never do it again. I don't know if that was Kathy's feces. I don't know, but it's really hard to control our needs to use the restroom based off somebody else's opinion. And I'm sure she's not letting Kathy go to the restroom. When Dave comes home, she sells the fact that the container was full of Kathy's feces to Dave. And Dave is disgusted and Shelly decides they need to punish her in the only way they know how and he needed to waterboard her. So Dave goes out backs and he kind of puts together this contraption and they duct tape Kathy to it. And on Shelly's command, Kathy's head is lowered into a bucket of water and it was held there until Shelly said. The kids were ordered to stand guard at different parts of the property, making sure that none of the neighbors or anyone could hear the obscenities that Shelly was yelling at Kathy or the screams that came from Kathy in between the submersions. From the moment Shelly's punishments went into overdrive, Kathy was fed expired food that she had blended into smoothies. And every time she gave one to Kathy, she expected to hear how delicious it was. And this is part of the reason why Kathy could not fight back there. In the end, she wasn't getting nutrients. She was eating mold and, and God only knows what else was growing on some of that. There's one time that Shane told Nikki about Shelly filling a cup full of salt and going out to the pump house and giving it to Kathy. And she told Kathy to eat the whole cup of salt. It would help her swollen feet. After she finally got it all down, Shelly shoved some pills into her face and ordered her to take those. Kathy was finally at the end. Shane and Nikki knew that she needed to go, but she couldn't. Her breathing had got to a point where it was being labored just sitting there. And as far as standing went, there was no way she could stand up on her own. Shelly decided that Kathy needed to come in to the house from the pump house and have a nice bath. It would make her feel better. 
With each step she took to the house, the poor woman groaned in pain. The bath was a treat from where Shelley stood, as most of the time Kathy's baths consisted of bleach in her garden hose. As Sammy and Shelley helped Kathy into the bath, she slipped and she knocked the glass shower door to the floor and little shards of glass danced across the floor and then Kathy fell and she cried out in pain as she was cut on her legs and her stomach and Sammy says it's in this moment that she could see that Shelly was scared, that she had taken it too far. Kathy was immediately moved into the house and she had a bed in the add-on that Dave had worked on the weekends when he was home. It was readily apparent there was something wrong with Kathy because she couldn't even perform simple motor functions of a three-year-old child. She was handed a toy of toys where she had to connect two cords together and she never got it. Something that simple she couldn't even do. In July of 1994, Dave drove home, strung out on a gallon of coffee and no-dos. When he walked in the door, he heard a sound coming from the laundry room. It was like nothing he'd ever heard. Things had changed from the last time he had been home the previous week. He could see that Kathy was getting worse and not better. The side of her face began drooping. She was bruised and cut. Shelly insisted that she was getting better, but Dave could see that the simple act of following his finger with her eyes, she couldn't even do. Shelly loaded up Sammy and Tori and told Dave that she was going to go get Nikki from work. Shane and Dave were left alone with Kathy. Dave leaned in close to Kathy and he could hear her start to choke on her vomit. Her smell was nauseating. Her eyes rolled to the back of her head. Dave watched petrified as Kathy struggled to breathe. She was motionless, moaning and groaning just a little. Dave asked Shane what was wrong with her and Shane couldn't tell him. The two watched Kathy pass away, neither moving, neither sure of what they were supposed to do. Dave jumps up and he tries to help. He scoops the vomit from her nose and her mouth to open her airway. Dave yells at Shane to help him. The two shook, trying to resuscitate her. They performed CPR. They managed to get her up and do the Heimlich maneuver. But despite their last-ditch effort, Kathy Loreno was dead. Kathy spent the last five years of her life believing everything that her once best friend told her. If she showed skepticism, then a rage like she had never seen before would rain down on her until she repeated sorry enough times. She looked at the children she once believed through story were bad children as the ones that understood her. Sometimes she secretly prayed they would step in and intervene because she was no longer strong enough to stand up for herself. Instead, those kids were just as scared as she was Kathy suffered unimaginable torture, sometimes being treated worse than a prisoner of war. She was robbed of basic human rights and liberties by the person who rode the high of an adrenaline rush that would come with the punishments she dished out. This is a story that needs to be told. Not because it feeds the inner crime nerds we all are, but because Shelley will walk free again. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we start this heartbreaking journey of the house of horrors that Shelley ran. 
Join me next week as we are led further into a story that only gets worse before it can get better. As always, I will leave you with one last line. Forgetting is difficult. Remembering is worse. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>